0: Okay, everybody. Thank you all f- so much for coming. Thank you for coming out to the Prisma Conference, and thank you for coming to a Podcast Live episode. So my name is Elliot Rabin, and I'm the Director of Thought Leadership at Prisma. And uh, we have been running podcasts now for about two and a half years. And for the last year and a half, we have this series called Podcast Live, which is, gives a platform for people to learn about really innovative and profound work that people are doing in schools. Work that um, really has wide ranging implication for all kinds of wonderful things that go on in schools. And uh, I'm sure you're going to agree that today's episode, today's presentation fits the bill for that. Let me tell you a little bit about the the format. We are gonna start with the presentation and uh, after that we're going to have some uh, conversation with, uh, with Josh Gold here, who's the principal at the Hafter School on Long Island. And um, after that, there's going to be a workshop led by my colleague, Gavi Elkind. Um, so I'm really thrilled to welcome uh, two folks from the Schechter School of Boston, uh, Rebecca Lurie, who's the head of school, and uh, Dr. Jonah Hassenfeld, who's the director of Learning and Teaching, which I think is a really interesting title. Usually it's uh, in, inverted, so uh, I don't know if we're, we're going to have time to talk yeah. about that. But it's very interesting. Anyway, um, we're thrilled after doing many of these episodes on Zoom, which doesn't feel quite, it's half live. Now we're really live and in person, so that's, that's very exciting. And um, the, t- the title of today's podcast, as you see, is Organizational Structure, as a driver for institutional alignment and change. That sounds very dry and wonky, but the subject really is, could, is anything but. So I'll hand it over now to the presenters.
1: Thank you so much. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Hi everybody, um, I'm Rebecca and this is Jonah. And we're here to tell you a bit of a story about how we changed the organizational structure at our school called Schechter Boston and um, maybe provide some insight for all of you if you think about this for your schools. So just to sort of start, why did we go about this process? Um, I'm in my seventh year as head of school which sounds crazy for those of you who know me Um, and I just and we can talk about it later but I came from a background that was not schools um, and I just knew that the organizational structure was not right at our school even though it mirrored most traditional schools there was a principal who did almost everything they had about 25 direct reports but I could just tell that the structure wasn't right and the teachers weren't spending time on the right things and they weren't getting the support that they needed Um, and so that sort of like gut feeling drove me to number one hire somebody named jonah hassenfeld who became the director of learning and teaching because a belief of mine is that talent is the answer to all problems. And you'll see, and you'll hear Jonah, and you'll come to realize why this was such a smart move of me. Um, if I can pat myself on the back a little bit. But then with Jonah in our school, he and I set out to answer these two questions, which really are, what do we value as a school, and what structures do we need to support it? And I just want to start by saying, organizational structure, I believe, is a critical part to do transformational change at your school. And you could tweak at the margins in many ways. But unless you have the right people and roles and structure, and in general, the right people on the bus and in the right seat on the bus, then most things can't come to fruition unless you solve some of those bigger problems. So I'm gonna turn it over to Jonah to um, share a little bit about when we uncovered that we were gonna do organizational structure, what do we value? We value as well.
2: Yeah, so, so it, might, it might seem hard to believe, but we actually, we start, mm-hmm. I started um, in September of 2020, right? And so we were opening school um, in person you know, for the first time in the pandemic. And we actually embarked on this process um, while we were figuring out how to have school during COVID, which, which in retrospect feels really crazy. But we started just by asking ourselves, you know, what are the things that our, our school believes? What are we trying to accomplish? And we came up with this list of four beliefs um, that that actually we we think that different schools could have different lists. This was our list, and it ended up driving our choice about what roles and structures we wanted to have in our organization. And so first of all, um, probably this first one, learning and teaching should be our primary focus, all schools would agree on. But when we looked at teachers' schedules, we found that teachers were actually spending almost no time uh, collaboratively working to get better at learning and teaching. Um, they spent time in student services meetings, you know, thinking about how to do student case management. Um, they spent time reviewing special schedules you know, for, <laughs> for special days and special arts programs. But if you ask like, how do you as a teacher work on your own practice, that just was a thing that was not happening in the school. And um, w- when I came into the school, I, I really just felt very, very strongly that we had to figure out a way to treat teachers. As, as professionals and artists and you know folks who needed a lot of time and energy uh, to work on what they did, which was our second our second value. There's no recipe for great teaching. Um, there are models out there where teachers are treated you know as cogs in the machine, where they're implementing scripted curricula, um, they're following you know um, very very strict structures, and they burn out after a few years, and then someone else comes in. That was not what we wanted for our teachers. We wanted to say we. We believe there's a career trajectory here. We believe that you can work forever to become to become a great teacher and we wanted our structure to reflect that. Um, third, you know when you look at a principal who has 25 direct reports, Um, there's just no way that person can be providing the kind of coaching and mentorship and supervision and scheduling the fire drill and making (laughs) sure the buses are there on time and figuring out what happens when the lunch tables aren't set up. I mean, it is just not a possible job to do. And so we also decided very, very early on that we were going to look at the talents of the people that we had in our school and try to push to them as much as we could in a structured kind of way. And so this, this, this word uh, distributed leadership, which um, Rebecca will talk about kind of where we got that term from, but that became like the watchword of the whole process that we went through of saying like we believe that there are so many more leaders in this school um, than our people who go to the senior leadership meeting and we want to empower those people and give them the support and autonomy to do what needs to be done. Um, and then finally, you know, and this, is, this has already come up as a theme at this conference, The question of like what is the career path uh, for a great teacher, right? You know, traditionally the model is you teach for some period of time, and then you make a choice. Do I want to leave the classroom and become an administrator? Um, or uh, am I committed to my craft and I'm going to work you know, with one group of 15 to 20 kids you know, every year uh, for a long time? And we felt that there are actually other possible career paths that there could be for teachers. And we wanted to build into our organizational structure lots of different pathways. Of course, we celebrate the, the classroom teachers who, who work in the classroom for decades. You know, and we want people to have a lot of different options. I mean I, I Told a lot of people, you know, during this, like when I decided I, I was a high school history teacher for many years, the choice to move away from being a classroom teacher um, into school leadership. I still get to do some classroom teaching, but it's a really painful choice, and it's a choice that I don't think teachers uh, should have to make. And so we wanted our structure um, to reflect that. So we had this list of values, and then um, we started to do some research.
1: And just one yeah. meta value I want to say, which is I believe that how you spend your time conveys what you care about. And so that's just a value I would ask you to think about, is you can say something about, here's what I care about. Learning and teaching should be our primary focus. That's obviously what every school would say. But you actually show what you care about and value by what your actions. And so if you think about how meetings are focused, how teachers spend their time, that that conveys what you care about more than anything and how you as a leader spend right. and your
2: And so time. our school, when we started, we cared a lot about operations and logistics. We We, didn't, cared, we wouldn't have said we, that, though. We wouldn't have said <laughs> it, but, but our, the way we spent our time, operations, yes. and logistics, and individual student case management. Like, those were the single things. If you looked at our schedule, you would say, that's what this school cares about.
1: So what did we do? We came up with these beliefs. Um, And this, by the way, isn't as sequential as it sounds. They were very much you know, a a messy process, as anything is. Um, There's one report that I would encourage all of you to look at, and I can send it out to Elliot um, and Josh, who can share it beyond. But the Bain Consulting Group actually did a report that was most of the inspiration for us getting started. And their report was that basically what we said, that the traditional model of a principal running the show and having 25 direct reports is really antiquated. And it is not in any way doing um, um, a service to our schools. And they presented the idea of two cases. One was the Denver Public Schools, I hadn't even thought about I that know, until right, right now. <laughs> the Denver Public School System, the superintendent, had um, transformed their organizational structure through the entire city of Denver to be a distributed leadership model. And the second one was the KIPP School. Um, many of you probably know the Knowledge is Power program, the charter school in New York, Boston. Yeah. New York. Um, And so they gave those as a case study. And because Joan and I are just really curious people, we called those two people and said, hey, we read about you in the Bain study. Can you talk to us about what you did? I have to say, I don't think they were reached out to very often, in all honesty. And I think that tends to happen, where these things always come up and then nobody reaches out to them. And so I would encourage you, <laughs> if you're interested, you can reach out to them too. The superintendent of the Denver Public Schools now lives in Singapore and is running a similar model in Singapore. And he was happy to talk to us. And the KIPP program director is still at KIPP.
2: And just and just to add, just the, so the core idea of the distributed leadership structure is that you have individuals who part of their job is still being a teacher and part of their job is is having some kind of administrative role which includes supervising other teachers you know and so when teachers first encounter this idea that suddenly their colleague is going to become their supervisor you know that is tricky and the fact that we were able you know to talk to the superintendent of the denver public schools and he said like i did this with a school district of 80,000 kids and yes it was hard to, to do this change management but it actually ended up okay like that that actually gave us a lot of you know backing to kind of say like there are other big schools big school districts that have done this
1: um, so the second piece that we did was, so we read the Bain Report, we interviewed schools, and then we at the same time, we asked a colleague of ours to do interviews with faculty and staff to find out what are pain points of theirs. Like we're going to do this top down thing of telling, not top down, but telling you outside external influences, but what are our own faculty and staff saying about the org structure? And so those two things sort of came together to um, result in this proposal that um We ended up going with, and I 'll have Jonah talk a little yeah. bit about
2: it and, and I just want to mention, and i'm going to talk through all of this you know in a second. I mean it was amazing to see the way that the faculty pain points lined up with the concerns that we had, right? So there was this feeling of like i 'm left on my own, I feel like I'm on an island you know i don't I don't know how to get the information that I need, i don't know who I'm supposed to go to for support, and so it actually it worked out nicely that the two two kind of strands of research kind of came came together. And so this, after many, many iterations and moving sticky notes around and thinking about things, this this was basically the structure that we we came up with. We split the school, instead of splitting it by grade spans, instead of having a division of pre-K to three Um, four, five, and six to eight, um, and we also have an early childhood division, we split it by by function. And so we said there's this learning and teaching function, and then there's going to be a student experience function. Um, And in the learning and teaching function, we divided the teachers um, into teams of around eight teachers, which, based on our conversations with folks in the field, seemed like that's about the most people that you can provide um, really effective support to. Um, And in pre-K to five, these were organized by grades. We had a pre-K to one team, a two-three team, and a four-five team. And in middle school, um, they were organized by discipline. So we had a STEM team, which which included math and science, um, a Hebrew team, and then a humanities team, which included Jewish studies, language arts, and social studies. Um, There's so much that went into
1: coming to those points. And I think the point... For us today, is that the outcome is just what we came up with? It's about the process that we went through to get there. So right. we could have very easily landed in a different model, but the idea of having a team lead who is half time in the classroom, half time supervising teams, right. teams of about eight teachers, um, and how they report into the learning and teaching function—that was those are the big core concepts right. that existed within um, our structure.
2: Yeah, and and you know, as Rebecca kind of was saying earlier, right, like how you structure people's time says what you value. And so, you know, through the whole process, Rebecca was kind of always saying, well, you can't just like do this and then walk away. We have to decide, so so how does this structure actually function on a day-to-day basis. And so what that meant is we believed that every direct report should have a weekly one-on-one meeting, either 40 minutes or 45 minutes, with their supervisor. And so now teachers went from basically never having an individual meeting with their supervisor to having one every single week you know and, and we did more research we can talk about about like how do you teach people who have never been managers before how to structure like what should happen in a one on one and we came up with all these structures around that you know we had regular team meetings focused on learning and teaching so we said we're actually going to take some of the time away from the student services meetings the student experience meetings and we're going to say this is a time you know to talk about pedagogy to watch a video of teaching to you know to work on curriculum in various ways and we implemented those those collaborative meetings. Um, I asked all the team leads basically to block out schedule, you know, time in their schedule to make sure that they were observing every teacher on their team at least every other week for at least 20 minutes. You know, those were sort of the parameters. And then we would talk about like, well, what were they seeing in the classroom? I mean, that, that one alone shifted you know, how we did performance management. I mean, in the old structure, the main way that performance concerns <laughs> were surfaced was from parent complaints. Mm. And, you know, now a couple of years into this new structure, it is almost never the case that when we get a parent concern about a teacher that we're caught off guard because the team leads are watching and they've already come up with a plan to support that teacher because people are getting so much time, you know, with them. Um, and then I think my, my role is supervising what we came to call the ed team, which is the team of team leads. And we had weekly meetings. um, And that now is the body that is basically making educational decisions um, for the school, whether it's about curriculum, whether it's about um, teacher performance and staffing and structure. I mean, all of that is now happening um, in a collaborative way in the team of team leads. And then I'm not going to say too much about this, but the director of student experience, which was a new position we created, that person, their sole responsibility is to manage um, this kind of student case management. They direct support and counseling, and they're really the primary conduit um, for parent communication, so when parents don't know who to call at the school, you know the director of student experience becomes like the you know, the switchboard, and then they can direct uh, people to the appropriate place. I will just say, you know, just so you don't think that everything is like rose, you know, rosy and perfect. I mean, the director of student experience has ended up taking on many of the operational and logistical functions that the principal used to do, and something that we're continuing to think about is like what is the right way to divide the like student. Case management function from like really the operational function, and like what's the right way to
1: divide, to divide that Just up? Just one big yep. piece on this is that who your supervisor is is a really important point. Um, and so we decided that the supervisor would be in the learning and teaching function. And that means full on supervisor. If somebody's late to work every day, 15 minutes the supervisor is the one to hold them accountable to that. So even things that are not teaching and learning related, we made the decision that because we value learning and teaching so much, that the supervisor needed to be within that function. Um, So what other changes did we make? The first one um, is that we actually had this process um, called decision rights. Because when you have distributed leadership, it's so easy to say, well, wait a second. All these people are involved. Like, who's doing what? So we brought in an outside consultant um, in Boston who, um, who helped facilitate a decision right process for us, and it landed in a document that says, "When this situation happens, here's who is the decision maker. here's who gives input, and it's documented." And without that document, which by the way, we have referred to regularly, there was yeah. even a contentious moment like you know about yeah. a curriculum choice. And we looked at the document and we said, guys, we did this. You may not agree with it, but we did yeah, this.
2: So we sat, I mean, we sat in a room for like several hours, hours on several occasions. And I had never, I had never heard this concept of decision <laughs> rights before. And it has become yeah. like such an important concept because when, when a situation is unfolding, someone will ask, wait, who has the decision right yeah. here? And that's a question teachers will ask. It's a question that, that we ask. And sometimes we'll, you know, sometimes it's sort of a concept that just helps you know, say like, well, we just have to decide, like, am I playing the role of advisor here or is the decision ultimately on me? And so we, you know, we started out with a lot of, of you know, different kinds of cases that could come up. Like, just to give it like a couple of examples, it could be like, who decides what um, intervention happens with a particular student if that student is in trouble? And there's lots of times that there's debate about that, but we know there's a person, you know, there's the title of a person, and it's done by title, not by the name of a yeah. person. That's where this decision right lives, you know. um, It could be a question like who decides which hire letters are issued next year. You know, that's another decision, right? These are like tricky things, but the fact that it's been documented um, has helped tremendously.
1: And then um, just um, to to move to the next pieces, we did do a lot of management training for team leads because teachers coming out of the classroom do not have the skills to all of a sudden be a supervisor. Um, And I would say um, that's obviously an ongoing process that most of it doesn't. Yes, we dedicated days to management training and we did scenario planning, but so much of management training comes in one-on-ones with Jonah, supporting them and me supporting Jonah, the day-to-day reinforcement of like there's this teacher who's doing this thing that's so hard. How do I how do I navigate and, Yeah, that? and
2: I would say just the you know the two things I would say about that. So like like the Um, in advance piece of it was like saying, this is how you should structure your one-on-one. So like, I gave them this like three-part structure, you know, that I got from like one of these management books, right, which is like, you always start by saying, What's on your mind? And now, like, it's like a joke of the team lead that they know that whenever they have their one on one with me, I'm gonna start by saying what's on your mind, and they do that with That's their funny. teachers. I don't do that to you. you don't do that, but the rest of us do. <laughs> um, I didn't read the book. You didn't read the book. But, you know, but, but that has worked really well because it, it really has helped teachers feel that they know that there's gonna be a time in the week that if they have a problem, they have someone that they can bring that to. And then the second part of the meeting is the supervisor getting to say what's on their mind, um, and then you do kind of a next steps protocol. Like, what are we taking out? What are our action items from this? And so that was like really helpful for people just to kind of know like, how do I run this meeting. Now everybody kind of has their own style, but that was really important. And then I would say the second biggest management training piece we did is you know, how do you give negative yeah. performance yeah. feedback? Yeah. That's like the single Definitely. most thing that classroom teachers are worried about <laughs> in moving into a supervisory role. And I would say that you know, Rebecca, I mean, Rebecca is like really an expert at giving positive and, and um, critical performance feedback in a way that is really focused on improving performance. And she's like, just helped our entire culture become a place where you can just give somebody like, a quick correction. You know? And it happens fast, and we have scripts for people. And that was something that I think people were very nervous about um, and also has, has worked out you know, pretty, pretty well.
1: Um. I think we just need to... Yeah, we'll okay. go on. We're going to go on. So the, another role that was really important is curriculum coordinators, and Jonah could talk about this forever, okay. um, but I'm not going to let him right now. Okay. Um, but it's, it's basically that you have these people who are in charge of a discipline. And so you have a Hebrew curriculum coordinator, social studies. It's either part of their job or their whole job. And so we just have this other role that lives in our org structure that I don't want you to think doesn't okay. exist. And then the last thing is the other meeting that we established is we do want to still talk about kids. We can't go like swing the pendulum the other side. And so we still have weekly meetings where they're called student experience meetings, but intentionally structured in a way so that we can like get through everybody. And, um, and we have processes for that, but they're run by the head of student experience. And so that structure still exists. It just has a place for it. It doesn't take up all of the meetings. Um, Another piece I just want to say on this, which I did lead this effort because it tends to be something I'm passionate about. Operations is there was this concern. Like remember, Jonah said in the beginning, our school spent so much time talking about operations. Um, The concern was an overinvestment in learning and teaching would break the operations of the school. Like it would just things would fall apart and. It, that did get a lot of airtime in the prior model, and my belief was that if operational systems are so intuitive and embedded, and, the, and and like Facebook, where you didn't need a training on how to use Facebook, you just do, it doesn't need airtime. It's just the way things work behind the scenes, and so I did spearhead an effort to invest a lot in operation streamlining, and I'm happy to, if anybody wants to talk more about that after, I'm happy to talk about it, but the idea really is that I leveraged the power of Google <laughs> and the Google Suite products to be able to make things so obvious. So, for example, if we're going to have weekly one-on-one meetings, the way to make it take up a lot of air time is to say, hey guys, go schedule your one-on-one meetings. No, no, no. Like, in the summer, I went through everyone's schedule and I preloaded their one-on-one meetings. So, like, they came to work on day one, and their schedule were filled with, a one-on-one with their team lead, weekly meetings on student experience, weekly meetings on learning and teaching. Whether they it, have lunch duty. Yeah, whether they, oh, their, yeah. their duties were all embedded in their Google Calendar, and and not, and we got a little bit crazy, like, even in the duty in Google Calendar, it says what role you play. So you don't just have right. bus duty. You have bus duty on the Metro West bus. Like, it was so And, and I just crazy. remember, like, being,
2: being at other schools where, like, the first month of the year is, like people scheduling all their meetings, and that just doesn't happen anymore, right? Because we do it over the summer and then people get there on day one and they just follow there.
1: And I will say this took a little bit getting used to, but just like Facebook is so intuitive, so is Google. Um, So I will just say that is a power I think has to happen. If you want to spend time on these things that you value, you have to make the noise of the other stuff go way down. Otherwise, it could just take up a lot of time. Um, so what we're almost done. So what were yeah. some change management guiding and, principles? And just, just as we,
2: so now we're like transitioning from like what we actually yes. did to we we definitely recognize. I mean, this was not a painless or easy process. Like we were really blowing up the whole way that lots and lots of people thought about their jobs, and um, you know something that that Rebecca really led um, and I learned a lot from is like we thought very intentionally of like how are we going to actually make this process um, this process work.
1: So the first, the first is that we, we say this joke yeah. between the two of us all the time, like no master plan. And we we joke about it because we sort of like think, do we actually have one or do we not have one? And the answer is we don't have one. That we're going into every situation with a vision of how we want it to be, but have no idea how it's gonna play out. And that every time you have a conversation, it's in service of you getting a little bit more closer to what the answer is. And so I just, I subscribe. I know most people are uncomfortable. I subscribe by the model of 20% and go. Like most people subscribe by the model of like, 80% 80% and go, like I'm very comfortable in the, um, in the messy. And so every conversation we had was like, we're now 30%, and now 40%, and now 50%, oh, we went backwards. Like So the idea that you don't have a master plan and there isn't one right answer was a big guiding principle of what we did.
2: Yeah, on the, on the flip side of no master plan, is so, so the idea that people felt like they could come into meetings with us and they could leave having actually changed what we were gonna do. That yep. was very powerful. Yep. On the other hand, um, you, you do need to come to the table with something, right? And, and I think that, that we found that it was very, very useful for people, for us to say, like this is basically what we're imagining. And I think probably in November or December of, tw- of 2020, we basically had blocked out roughly where we thought we were going to end up, and it changed a lot, but that was very important, and, and we have a board member who always <laughs> says this thing of, you should have a strong opinion held loosely, We love it, right? And, and that's been a very effective thing for us, that you come to the table, you say, I really believe we should do this, and I could change my mind if, <laughs> if you convince me otherwise, and so that balance of no master plan and strong opinions held loosely was like very much a big part of um, the change management process. And, and you
1: know, the last yeah. one is that you're going to get pushed back. You're just going to. You're especially going to get pushed back from the people who have been there for 36 years who are like, but this is the way it works. You have one principal. So when I go into the office, they're the person. The buck stops with them. And I say, no. Like, I just don't agree with you. And that's OK. And so you you do have to believe that strong opinions held loosely. And you have to stand by some of your initial values. Like, some of our teachers don't agree leadership has to be distributed. We do. OK. Maybe this isn't the right school for you. So anyway, I would say ex- you should expect that you will get pushed back. In fact, if you don't, then you're not pushing hard enough. Mm-hmm. That's actually my, my true belief. OK. Um, so on the end, uh, at the end, the process that we actually followed on change management is we brought in key stakeholders early and often. Um, parents, teachers, starting from that survey that we mentioned in the beginning. So identify, you could even do a thing called stakeholder maps. That's an actual thing if you were to Google it and say, let's map out our stakeholders and let's have a strategy for how we address them. And I do believe early and regularly is important. And just think we did this during COVID. So like you can do this during non-COVID. We communicated a lot and we communicated broadly. Um, and just in general, believing that any information you have should be shared is something that um, that we subscribe to. Um we said before, bring in outside experts. So we had a consultant help us facilitate the decision rights process. And not only, like, did I really need a consultant? He probably didn't have that much, like, actual expertise. But, uh, sorry, I didn't mean that. He has a ton of expertise. What I mean is, because he's going to listen to this. What I mean (laughs) is, he, um, the things that ended up happening, it's possible that I could have facilitated. But having an outside person come in and say, this is best in class, you can't, like pay enough for that. That actually really matters because the, your, then your skeptical team members will be like oh this isn't just Rebecca like singing, sitting and like yeah. okay. Um, so just at the end. Reflections looking back. Um, we, we very much believe in change. Maybe you can get the sense from us. And so we subscribe to the idea that there's no limit to better. Uh, and so that's just an attitude that we went into this, and we continue to live by every day. That was a core part of our, our focus. And then I said this in the beginning, I do believe that talent is the single most important aspect of running a great school. Everything else would be tweaking at the margins, but unless you get the right team, um, and so org structure is a way to make that team run in the right jobs. Um, don't let resistance and skepticism keep you from moving forward, you should expect it. Maybe not welcome it, but expect it, and just manage it. And last is you do have to get comfortable with not knowing what's going to happen next. Like, you have to be okay with the fact that you're going to go in a meeting and be like, oh, my God, I think we just changed, like, did a 180. Mm-hmm. What's going on? And that did happen, and I get invigorated by that, Not and Jonah does. Most people don't. So, um, but you do have to get comfortable a little bit with knowing that you won't know how it's going to end. Um, so that is...
0: That is our OK, now I'm welcoming uh, Josh Gold, who's going to engage uh, our speakers in conversation. And while he's, while they're talking, think about what questions you might want to ask. We'll have a, a Q&A section with you after that before we go into the workshop.
3: Thank you, Elliot, and uh, thank you, Rebecca, and Jonah. It was a very interesting uh, presentation. Again, thank you to uh, Prisma for providing the platform and the space for this kind of a conversation. Uh, a few quick clarifying conversations. My, my first uh, or question. My first is: the teachers are called supervisors when they're in that role. Are they genuinely supervisors, or are they coaches? Yeah. And to what degree are they in an evaluative position versus giving feedback? Like, how do you do? You have a structure for like um, how you evaluate teachers? How teachers know whether or not they're sort of. Effective, ineffective?
2: Yeah, so I, <clears throat> I think in some ways, I mean, this was one of the biggest debates that we had where, where teachers would say, actually, particular people, particularly people who are coaches would say, you can't supervise someone who you're coaching because if you're supervising them, they won't trust you as a coach. Right. And actually, one of the things it says in the Bain study is that education is the only field that makes that distinction. Mm -hmm. Um, That everywhere else, your supervisor is also the person who is helping you get better. Um, and so we made a conscious decision that your super like the team lead is your supervisor um, and, you your know, and and your coach. Um, we have other instructional experts, but like this the, the team lead is meeting with you, they're observing you, they are evaluating you. Um, they are playing an important role in in serious cases and deciding whether or not you should continue to work at the school. Um, you know, and they are, also, they are also coaching you. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the projects that we did last year, which was the first year, is um, with the team leads, we created a vision of great teaching for Schechter that, that specified like, our areas of teaching performance. Um, and like it looks like all the teaching rubrics that are out there. Like There's nothing magical about a teaching rubric, but the fact that we did it ourselves and we know it's our Schecter Boston vision of great teaching, I think was really empowering. We're about now, like when I get back to school, like we're starting our mid-year reviews, and they're all in terms of teacher self-evaluation on that rubric, um, and then, you know, and then their, their supervisors, team leads, um, are going to do that process with them, and then they, you know, they, it's an HR
1: process.
3: Right. But ultimately, the decision right on whether or not a teacher is going to continue to work at your school as a teacher is held by that supervisor, who's also in, a colleague?
1: In our decision rights document, it's held by Jonah. Uh-huh. So Jonah, the director of learning and teaching, is the one who officially decides if somebody's going to stay at Schechter or not. Right. But the only input he gets on that teacher is from the team lead. Got it. So the team lead raises performance issues,
2: and, and it's never—I mean, it, it has not happened in the last you know 18 months. I mean, there have been cases you know where someone has left uh, in that process. Um, it's never happened that like the team lead and I have disagreed about it. Like it's right. a very collaborative yeah. Yeah.
3: process. I love the vision of you described it as uh, putting sticky pads up on the wall as you were reevaluating your org structure. I picture like an FBI room that's like making <laughs> sense of how we're going to do this, right? Like you said we decided. Who's we in that scenario? Who decides where the sticky charts uh, are end up and how you reorganize? Of
1: the org structure. Yeah. So we we have we have a team called Hanhala that's our leadership team, and I would say we relied on them a lot to come up with what the org structure would look like, and it was really back and forth. So for example, that point on the middle school that it was divided by discipline. Instead of by grade, I th- we, we said that in one sentence. That was probably like three months worth of work right. and, a, and a debate. So who's on um, who's on that team though? So, the, uh, who? So our leadership team is made up of, um, uh, so, COO type position, an early childhood head. Um, they're the prior leaders of like the upper school. Um, who would be assuming remember they're now assuming new roles in this org structure, right so um, that might be why you're asking the question because the outcome of this process affects them directly. Mm-hmm. so we got input from them, and then ultimately, I would say it was me and Jonah who made the final decision.
3: No lay leadership involved in that decision
1: No lay leadership.
2: but we presented I mean we presented to the board regularly through this process and and I mean we're blessed to have a board that trusts the trusts the school. I don't think the they,
1: I would have, I called them maybe for some yeah. advice, right. but they would but, never. But we, yeah,
2: but we share, I mean, we share with, we actually, even before we, I mean, we had, you know, I guess once we announced it, we had parent meetings, we had teacher meetings before we formally announced it, so the goal was to try to get a lot of input. Right. Um, I, I would say that ultimately, actually, the senior leadership team of the school, like, were, was the group that actually said, like, we are all okay with, doing
1: with this. a ton, with a ton of compromises right. and caveats. yes right.
3: when you started to head in a new organizational direction, did you get any pushback from your board from your lay leadership None. about really None. that's that's great, but I
1: think it 's because our board is so supportive in general right um, and I do have a bias to talk to my board chair all the time, right, so I would even forward him an email to say, "Hey, check out this latest you know version of this so uh, that was part of the change management where we said early and often. Um, that I did with my board chair, just just to fill him in.
3: I was going to ask this later, but I think it makes sense now. You're in your seventh year, you said, Rebecca, right? At uh, at the school. When did you start this process in your tenure and do you think that when you started it mattered? Meaning you said you had a trusting relationship with your board. Could you have done this in your first or second year or did it take you time to build up that equity and that trust?
1: Definitely. I couldn't have done it um, for a lot of reasons. I was coming into a school that had separate change management issues that I had to navigate, as any new head does. So I spent the first three years managing that and getting new people on the, in, the, in different positions and just trying to make people trust me and doing a lot of cultural work. And so I couldn't even tackle something like this until, what was it, year four? Five. Year five, yeah. I probably thought about it in year four. Well, by hiring Jonah, that was my first step in this direction, which was done in year four. But in five was the year that I felt like I could make these changes.
3: Right. Um, Basic logistical question, I guess, is what are the financial implications for taking half your teachers, or many of your teachers, out of the classroom half the time? Someone has to fill that in. I imagine that's a big cost increase.
1: Yeah, so we invested a lot in this model, and so the board of course cares about that, but it's my job to figure out how I continue to balance the budget and find savings in other ways in order to make that work. Right. And so that's what I did, is I said, I'm, this is so important to me to do, that it's going to cost me XYZ, that I need to find other ways in the budget to offset that incremental cost. And we're a school that, you know, we have a lot of, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a big school, uh, you know, with 430 kids, and so we're able to figure out how to shift expenses around to make make that work.
2: And and we're also, I mean, we're also a growing school. Mm -hmm. um, And I think we believe that in part, I mean, there's so many factors. Uh, I actually believe that this structure has already made a difference in our enrollment, that I think that even when tours come through and you can introduce them to the team lead, and these are like these really impressive people, like I think that 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 actually has has helped a lot. And so, you know it's hard to like say exactly how much, especially with everything else going on, but I do think that that has been a part of this, this story as well.
3: Are there pain points that continue to be present, problems of practice that you're still experiencing, and if so, how are you addressing them?
1: Yeah, I think um, I mean one, one pushback that we got from the board is um, you're taking your best teachers out of the classroom out of the classroom.: Well, that stinks, mm-hmm. right? And of course, in the short term, that's really hard to stomach. And of course, in the long term, it's the right answer. Um, it would be terrible to take them out 100%. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important for Jonah to make sure that those team leads feel like this is a doable job, which by the way, sometimes it isn't. I will say that's a pain point. Uh, doing 50% teaching, 50% other stuff, is just anytime you do a job half and half, it's just you're always pulled, right? Mm-hmm. And so that is something we continue to navigate, and yet we deeply believe that's the right model. And,
2: and by the way, like the career path point, which we started from, like team, team leads have said to me, like with a smile, I, I feel like I could never leave because I would never find a job like this yes. somewhere else, right? And so I think that, like, yes, maybe you would get one more year out of your great teacher teaching full time, but if we can get ten more years out of that person teaching fifty percent of the time by giving them, you know, this opportunity for growth and extra leadership, like that, actually in the long run is better is better for our students. So I think we think about it um, that way as well. Yeah.
3: Do you have instances where you think teachers should be taking on more leadership, but they're hesitant to? and instances where teachers think they should be taking on more leadership and you don't think that they should, and that's a, that's a conversation as well. Team leads? Or yeah, teachers. so like meaning there's a lot of avenues here to take on more leadership opportunity and responsibility, right? Do you have situations where you want a teacher to maybe move out of the classroom, teacher doesn't want to leave the classroom, or a situation where a teacher thinks that they're, they should be leaving the classroom, oh, I should be in that position, that person is, mm. but you don't think that yeah. they're right I, for it.
2: I, I think we have both, and I think that the ways that we have managed those is we have really um, thoughtful and transparent processes, yeah. you know, so when we... Can I you come know, back to it just a second? Yeah.
3: What are those processes? So how do you tap yeah. someone to become a teacher? Yeah, so, so, so we,
2: but we designed a process where basically we asked them, you know, we, we did, like, interviews, um, we asked them to look at videos of teaching and type up notes, you know, we asked them to talk about how would you structure a feedback meeting with this teacher, um, and we asked them, like, how... sent us an agenda for a sample weekly meeting, right? Yeah. And so to do that and
1: to have everybody say, like, anyone can apply for this... Yes. And so I think that process and how serious some people took it mm-hmm. and how reflective they were allowed us to say, oh, I see you in this totally new way. And a sign of success to me is every December I send a note out to, my, to the team to say, hey, you know, if you have a thought for next year, do you want to change your role? Do you want to add hours? Take it away. Um, get back to me. And I have people now saying, I want to be a team lead. I want to talk about a career path to become a team lead. And that, to me, is a great sign of success.
3: Right, right. Have there been problems of practice or pain points along the way that if you were going to start this whole process over from the beginning again, you would do differently to either avoid those or navigate them better?
1: I don't, I can't think of anything like core. I mean every, every decision had pros and cons. And I think if we had done something else, we would have suffered other consequences. like, for example, a decision we made to have a humanities department that's made up of language arts, social studies, and Jewish studies is a big decision. Because a lot of schools organize Jewish studies and Hebrew together, and we made the decision to organize Jewish studies with, with language arts and social studies. That's not a good choice or a, or a bad choice. It was just a choice that I'm actually very proud of, and I'm seeing a lot of positive momentum coming from that um, by the team lead of humanities. It's very possible that we would have seen, seen a lot of great momentum if it had been organized with Hebrew, right? Yeah.
3: Uh, last question, real quick, um, what, uh, have the meetings in general increased on teacher schedule? There are a lot more meetings Tons. than there used to be, yes. and do you get any negative feedback about no. that? No.
1: In fact, we do, we're a school that asks for feedback all the time. So yeah. we actually issued a survey and tell us, do you like the meetings you have? Which meetings do you like? How would you rate them? And people are so grateful for the meetings. The only pushback we do sometimes get is on frequency, because Jonah said the pendulum swung so hot. You had no meetings, and then you had weekly meetings. With your, one-on-one with your, team, with your supervisor. So sometimes we now have bi-weekly meetings, right. just because it's a little much. Um, but I don't think that people get their schedule and they say, oh my god, this is unrealistic. They say, thank you for carving out time mm-hmm. right. for the things that I had to find myself before.
3: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you guys are doing an incredible, incredible job, special work, special environment. Thank you.
0: Thank you, yes. So now we'll take uh, audience questions. I, I want to just begin with one question. Um, you know, it's clear how your process has uh, created a profound change in the faculty, and in uh, their career, their sense of career, their emphasis on growth and and professional learning. What what impact have you seen this having in the classroom and on the student? (laughs)
2: Um, Yeah, I I think that I would say, Some of the kinds of things is is in terms of, for example, like curriculum development. You know, there are many, many more new kinds of projects and units and flexibility around how we can meet students' needs. You know, and so I think in the old model, let's say you had a phone call from a parent who was concerned, you know, about uh, math enrichment, right, for example. Um, I think the teacher would do the best they could, the principal might get involved, you know, you just sort of try to handle it now. That teacher goes to their team lead and says, Help me come up with a plan to meet this child's needs. They do that in their one on one. They share it with the family, you know, and those kinds of things that I think have had a really profound impact. I think the speed with which teachers can make small changes to their yeah. practice, um, yeah. you know, something as simple as like, you know, wait time, work on wait time with your students, like that, that actually changes things like the very next day. So I think just there's a lot of little things like that that are happening now.
1: Um, Thank you so much, this was amazing. Um, Can you talk more about the team leads in terms of the transition that they made from being colleagues to supervisors and um, maybe some of the things that came up specifically, I'm curious about sort of relationships, right? I went from being friends to now I have to tell you don't be late to work Um, and sort of how that career path, how you're seeing that evolve in terms of their satisfaction, their their sort of process.
2: Um, So just to start at the end, I mean, I think the team leads have a very high level of satisfaction in their team lead work. I think they sometimes worry that their classroom teaching suffers because of the time that they're putting into being team leads. Um, Everybody was very worried about that transition. I just don't feel like that concern actually materialized in the end. Which, which um, the, the concern about transitioning from colleague... Yeah, from colleague to supervisor. You don't know
1: why? It's because 95% right. of the work is not contentious. Like, 95% of the work that I do with Jonah, that you know anybody does with their direct report, is like in service of them getting better. They're all worried about the 5% of terrible, right? But it takes up so much less space than they think. And so if so many of your one-on-ones are about... Like Showing a real interest in your practice, like no one's done that before. They're just so grateful somebody's paying attention.
2: And I would say last year when I tried to have team leads do mid-year reviews, they made, this was like when they had been team leads for three months. They were like, we can't do this. Absolutely not. There's no way I can do this. Yeah. And then this year when I was like, <laughs> I want to try this again, they were like, yeah, sure. I the think people are, people are ready to hear the feedback. And I think it was just... You know, people think, as Rebecca said, like about these tiny cases that are really difficult, but most of the time for almost everybody, it's just lovely, you know? And
1: also just think about relationships you have. Like if Joan and I are talking every day about his work and I, and I care about yeah. him and I care about his work, then the one thing I have to tell him that's feedback, he can hear because like, there's so much good, right? I just, so I think we're just trying to focus so much on, build a relationship that focused on the good and making you better. Are they finding it to be tenable? Like, it does sound like a hard job in terms of 50% fifth grade and 50% team lead. I think that it is person by person. I think that it's our job to figure out how to make it even more tenable, in all honesty. but I do believe they have to have a foot in the classroom. And by the way, another principle of our school is that everybody plays a role in the school. So, like, I'm a chavurah advisor this year. Jonah's teaching Beit Midrash. We all do tons of duties, lunch, recess, everything, right? So, in general, that's a belief of ours. Doing it 50% is more than me being a chavurah advisor, but we need to make it more tenable. I would say that is if you were to ask me what's hard, that's one of the hardest. Yeah. Um. Thank you, both. This is a very tactless question, but how do you, for the team leads, how do you manage for Hebrew, general studies, Judaic studies question? You mean like having a general studies teacher oversee? Right, like I'm imagining that knowing your Hebrew model, similar to our Hebrew model, I'm imagining that not all of the general studies teachers would be qualified to sit in a Hebrew class and necessarily understand all that is happening. And certainly you can see good teaching even without understanding every word, but I could imagine that could pose an obstacle.
2: Yeah, so I would say that the, um, the main instructional coaching function that we preserved was our Hebrew coaches. So we have a pre-K to three Hebrew coach um, and a four to eight Hebrew coach who actually is also the middle school Hebrew team lead. Um, and, so we, uh, you know, and so those people play a special kind of role in supporting teachers around pedagogy content knowledge of that specific subject area. Um, I think that our teachers also, though, have been surprised, our team leads have been surprised at how much they can support you know, teachers in Hebrew and Jewish studies um, and how they can you know, go into a pre-K Hebrew classroom and help a teacher think about you know, how to let four-year-olds jump around more you know, or sing more or those kinds of things. And so I think that um, a lot, they, I think everyone has been pleasantly surprised. Um, at that piece, but also that does continue to be a question, right? I mean, this debate of disciplinary expertise versus pedagogical expertise is one that we are trying to solve in a lot of different ongoing ways.
1: Is there a salary change for the team leaders or does their salary remain the same? Yeah, so they um, get 50% remission by 50% remission of their salary as team lead and then we do give them a stipend on top of that. Um, I'm not going to share the amount, but we give them a stipend on top in part to recognize their leadership, but also because we are expecting them to do some work over the summer. Uh, and so honoring that, we give them a stipend. Hi, can you share a little like color or detail to that one of those early conversations you had about identifying your values or beliefs? What kind of prompts did you respond to? Kind of how did you structure that conversation to generate, yeah, that list that you've now put back up on the book? That's so hard because...
2: Um, I think this is where like the narrative version sounds neater than it really was. I, I, I think I would honestly say, that it was not like we put up sentences on the board and talked about them i think it it was mostly in like october of that year it was really mostly rebecca and i just having many many conversations about different models of schools you know what we saw in our own school you know what levers we would like to have to be able to you know like i i mean i think for me like i remember one key thing of like okay i get a concern from a parent i literally have no way to make that change happen, right? And so, like, that was this question of like, how can we make sure that um, there's some w- way to to like move teaching practice.
1: I think also. Um, If you were to look at these four Rachel like you can sort of see me and Jonah in them So like the bottom one schools need career paths for top performers Of course Jonah believes that but like even the term top performer is a term that I use because I come from corporate America before And so this idea of like you need to retain your best people that is a belief that I just have and and at the same time every piece of research says that schools are crippled by no career path, so it was sort of like And then learning and teaching should be the primary focus of everything we do. That's, of course, Jonah's deep belief. Um, So I think you can sort of, it, it was a culmination of our own beliefs, the research that we did in these reports that coalesced.